We really think European butter from France is the best butter. And our friend, the expert baker and best-selling cookbook author David Leibovitz agrees. Check out our recent episode with David to find out how he cooks with quality butter. And for recipes, tips, and cooking advice, go to tasteeurope.com. We fired the whole line in one night. On a Friday night, Saturday night, had 220 covers on the books because I knew we were in review period and this was going to be the restaurant that made my, made my name. So why would I do it if it wasn't going to be right? And what that taught me was how to hire. You're listening to The Taste Podcast. I'm Editor-in-Chief Matt Rodbard, here with Senior Editor Anna Hiesel. On today's show, we talked to Angie Marr, chef owner of the Beatrice Inn. We spoke to her during a sold-out event we hosted with Bon Appetit at the Bell House in Brooklyn. We also, later on the show, will talk to Deb Perlman, who will answer a question from a reader. But first of all, Matt, how was your conversation with Angie? I mean, Angie is like the best storyteller. One of the stories she told was the day New York Times restaurant critic Pete Wells appeared in her restaurant. That is like every restaurateur's nightmare and dream, right? Well, a nightmare given that she was not in the restaurant, but she was at the James Beard House Blocks Away cooking dinner. That sounds like a heart attack waiting to happen. <laughs> oh my gosh, it was it's stressful. But she also talked about that. Speaking of stress, actually, she talked about the night she fired her entire staff, which is crazy, but also incredibly necessary, as she explains. Um, but she also just really talks about what it's like to cook in a kitchen in New York City. It's not easy, and I love her honesty. Here's Matt talking to Angie at the Bauhaus in Brooklyn. So, Angie, you told me not to put you on blast. Oh, no, don't do it. It's your birthday today. So what? Okay, what did you eat today? Like, I want to know what a chef. Like, did you wake up? What did you have? What did you eat on your birthday? I had a Jamaican beef patty for breakfast this morning. Oh, speaking to the mic. I I mean, come on, that's the breakfast of champions, right? Yeah. (laughs) Golden crust. Absolutely. Absolutely. Okay. (laughs) So you started with the beef patty. Did you go? Did you have any cake yet? Have you had a Uh, cake? I did. I had a little bit of cake uh, at the restaurant today. They were they were sweet enough, and they baked me uh, they baked me a little red velvet cake. Red velvet. Really sweet. Yeah. Oh, my God. And then later on, I hear you're going to have a little party. I am. <laughs> All right. I am. To be continued. Okay. Yeah. So let's, let's, I want, we got a lot to talk about because I love, just I, I love what you, what you do. I love your story. You're, you're, you're a great chef. You're a hardworking chef. Um, but first, let's back up. You okay. were born in Seattle. And yeah. your aunt, Ru- Ruby Chow, um, she was a well-known restaurateur in, Chicago, in Seattle, uh, opening for, uh, opening in 1948. Mm-hmm. Uh, she served uh, Sidney Poitier and Sammy Davis Jr. Yeah. This is one of the first Chinese restaurants in Seattle and also the, the West Coast. Yeah. You know, what's really interesting about, about Ruby's restaurant was it was kind of like, um, you know, Rick in Casablanca's. Like, everybody goes to Rick's, right? Yeah. And uh, at that time, everybody went to Ruby Chow's. And now in this day and age, we look at Chinese restaurants and we think, you know, fast, casual, um, you know, just Chinese food, takeout, right? Um, but back in the day, it was literally, you got dressed up, black tie, you went there and she was walking around in like, you know, the Chinese dress with the big bouffant hair. And it was, you know, she catered to people like Warren Magnuson and Sammy Davis Jr. Wow. Um, and, you know, it was, it was a very groundbreaking restaurant at that time. 
so what is the food like in 1948 Seattle? What kind of, like, what, what is the cuisine? Is it traditional Chinese cuisine? Is it what we call Chinese American cuisine? Yeah, it, it was traditional Chinese food. Um, her husband, Ping Chow, um, was from Canton. So it was a lot of Cantonese food. And actually, uh, you know, Tejal Rao from the Times uh, was kind shout enough. Shout out to Tejal. Yeah, shout out to Tejal. We love her, by the way. She's one of my favorites. Yeah, she is. And, but she was kind enough to actually um, dig up one of the original Ruby Chow's menus, and she gave it to me. And it was, it was amazing. And it, had, it was all the, the traditional dishes. And then she actually had a steak section on that menu as well. Wow, so segue yeah. to what you're doing now. Exactly. Yeah, so this, what, how were her steaks being served? They're probably a little different than what you're doing. Yeah, I mean, she just, she just had like the, you know, it was, I think on the menu is like the classic Ruby Chow's steak. Um, but, you know, it was, I think it was really about the ambiance, that restaurant, and really what it meant at the time. You know, Bruce Lee was a dishwasher in her kitchen. Uh, yeah, I know, right? Yeah. <laughs> and, and a tenant, right? He lived above the restaurant? Yeah. Is that right? Yeah, wow. yeah. So was he like was he doing martial arts in like the back? Like, oh, I don't know. I would assume so. <laughs> this is like movie material. This would be so cool. Well, it was a movie. Didn't you watch Enter the Dragon? Okay. They so... got her hair wrong in it though. <laughs> <laughs> um, I want to hear about this crazy story about when you were cooking at the James Beard House. Oh God. I know. I'm putting you on blast. <laughs> you were cooking at the James Beard House early in, early in your career, and the James Beard House is a well-regarded institution here. A lot of chefs... Explain the James Beard House. Well, you know, obviously the James Beard House is is very important. And, you know, it's such an old foundation um, and such an honor to be a part of. And you've got to get invited to go cook there. Um, You know, I've been fortunate enough to have done three dinners there now. And, um, but yeah, the night that you're referring to... So you're cooking the James Beard House. (laughs) Well, uh, I just bought the restaurant. I just bought the restaurant. From Graydon Carter. From Graydon Carter, yes. That's that's an interesting story. So you bought it from Graydon Carter from Vanity Fair, but you're cooking at the James Beard House, and you you get a text message that somebody's dining in your restaurant. Well, no, I didn't get a text message. I was putting out the first course... I, you know, this just, is like of seventeen courses. This is like yeah, really it was beginning. great. We were doing like an all beef dinner. I was putting out the first course. Um, you know, just like wiping the plates. The kitchen is you know obscenely calm, and uh, my sommelier comes whizzing by, <laughs> and over his shoulder he yells, "Get your stuff. We have to go." I'm like, "What are you talking what? about? What are you talking about?" I'm like, "We are. You've we're been we're cooking a week for this thing. I'm sure months." months. Sorry. Months. We've been planning months. You know, I got like illegal beef shipped in from from Europe. You know, it's a whole thing. It's smuggled in my suitcase. Um, it's it's an important dinner. And I, what are you talking about? We have to leave. And he's like, "Wells is in the restaurant." Wells, we is have in the to restaurant. go. Okay, so Pete Wells, New York Times restaurant critic. I think David Chang today on a podcast said David uh, Pete Wells can crush restaurants. Yes, That's a very David Changism. Yes. So this is like. The, cri- the critic of the New York Times in your restaurant. Yeah, it is the critic of the New York Times, right? <laughs> Take us through the next 35 yeah. minutes, 40 minutes. Um, <laughs> so I literally, fortunately, there was, a, there was a chef friend of mine who was actually having dinner that night. And I sent somebody to go get him, and he had to expo my own dinner. So I left. I go running down the street. Fortunately, I'm, I'm only, you know, two blocks away from the Beard House. I'm, like, two and a half blocks away. So I'm running down the street, um, and we went, went back to the restaurant, and, you know, I left my own beard dinner. And I'm like, okay, I'm never getting a beard award. This is never happening. <laughs> I've walked out. Nobody walks out of the beards, but... I, no, that was unprecedented. Nobody's ever walked out. 
but it gives this really <laughs> nice push-pull between the industry. You've got the Beards, which is one pe- group of people, and then you've got the New York Times, the different people, but you're clearly picking the New York Times because like, New York Times can crush your restaurant. I definitely pick the Times. <laughs> pick the Times. <laughs> so how did it go? How did it go? How did the meal... What did he, what did he have? Do you remember? You, you, of course you remember. What am I saying? I of course you <laughs> yeah. remember. Jeez, what am I uh, yeah, he had... I think we had the meat pie on the menu at the time, yeah. so we had that. He had a pork shoulder, which I've, I've been cooking that dish since I was 15. It was, like, one of my first contributions to Sunday supper. Um, but, you know, he came before people ordered, ordered almost a whole menu. It was great. And, and he was there till, like, 4 in the morning. Wait. That's a very lead. It was great. <laughs> He was there till four in the morning. I mean, Beatrice in the... As ba- were we all. Beatrice in We just in stayed. Is, he stayed. We all stayed. My father, my father, who was in town, yeah. stayed till like three in the morning. And we were just waiting for... It. It, was, it was amazing. It was one of the greatest nights. There's a method to that guy's madness. So two stars, though, right? Yeah, no, it was... It Shout was out two stars. two stars. Round of applause. Not easy. Not easy. Thank you. Oh... I Let's that. keep that going. Thank you, Donwell. <laughs> Let's keep that going all night. <laughs> um, I'm gonna read. I'm gonna read a quote from the New York Post because uh, the New York Post is great. Uh, in, in August, 34-year-old Angie Marr, who had toiled at the West Village Haunt as a chef since 2013, bought the bee from Vanity Fair editor in chief. The first thing she did: scrub the place clean of its pretentiousness. Yeah. That's a great line. I, I mean, I, I've always known the Beatrice in before you were there as this, like, club. I mean, right. where you went. It's like Kate Moss, like, broke her nose there, right? <laughs> I, I think she got a bloody nose, and okay. I think they shut the whole thing down. The but thing. here's the thing, though. So, it, you know, the, the restaurant has a huge history. It was a, yeah. one of the first speakeasies in New York in the 20s. Um, you know, they, the original door still exists there, which yeah. I think is, is amazing. Um, and then it was an Italian restaurant for years. Yeah. It was family-owned. The Cardias had it for over 50 years. Years. And then it was the club. I definitely wasn't cool enough to get in. I had to buy it same. to get in. So I, did, did you sneak in ever? No, same. Not so cool enough. Gone. I never went. Come on. I saw it on last night's party, though. Remember last night's party? I saw lots of photos from last night's party. I never went there. Yeah, no, I never, I never, I never went. I wasn't cool enough to get in. I had to buy it. But, um, but you know, then Graydon bought it, and and um, I think that there is a, a level of expectation that comes when you have Graydon Carter's name attached to it. And um, you know, and, and I love Graydon. He had been tremendously supportive, of, you know, during my time there when I worked for him, and and he and Anna Carter were tremendously supportive when when I bought it. So. Um, but at the end of the day, I wanted to create a restaurant that it would kind of be returned to the neighborhood because I think when it was a club, you know, it was shut down for, for noise violations. And, um, and then when Graydon bought it, I think there was kind of a, um, you know, just a, just a perception that it wasn't accessible, that it was kind of like his private club. And well, it was. It was. I mean, who are we kidding? Like, he, <laughs> he like, did business there. I'm sure Condé Nast got a few, yeah. you know, expense account. Yeah, no, and it was. And, you know, and, and I wanted it to be kind of this, like, neighborhood gem. You know, I wanted, I wanted people that lived in the West Village to be able to come to it again, just like they did when it was an Italian restaurant. So to have that, have that quality to it and also just be more approachable. Because the thing that I love about New York is, you know, it, we have this come-as-you-are attitude, right? That's New York. And 
what I love about it is that you walk into the restaurant now and it's like neighborhood regulars, like hooded sweatshirt, backward baseball cap at the bar hanging out or in the dining room, people in black tie, you know, getting ready to go out. You've got your businessmen, you've got artists, um, you know, it's really all walks of life. And that is what I think was so tremendously important about restoring that restaurant when we bought it was really making it represent all walks of life, which is New York. And I'm just going to jump in and say people who love meat. Yes. Because that is your <laughs> reputation. And yes. I want to drill it because like, that is really cool. And I think Pat LaFrida is somebody you're close with. And, I, and I've read that you will go to Pat LaFrida's warehouse um, often and hand select meat. And I think that's a process that I'm, I've never done that. Yeah. What's that like? See, it's really special. So Pat has, um, Pat's been a, a huge force in my life and he's, he's kind of like my, he's kind of like my Yoda. Okay. <laughs> so like every time I make a decision, you know, I call him and I'm like, what do I do? And, um, but as far as the beef goes, uh, you know, it's, I'm so lucky to have that relationship with him because we actually get like the top 2% of beef in the country. Two percent um, of beef? the top two percent of okay. beef, yeah. So the, the highest tier that you can get, like that's what we have. And so, um, you know, anytime the beef shipments come in, he will actually go and he'll handpick beef for our restaurant himself, and then it gets set aside. And then every other week, I go up and then I handpick out of what he's picked. What are you for looking us. for? Like what? Like how do you pick beef? Are you looking for a color, a specific color? Are you tasting it raw? Yeah, I taste it raw. We'll go up there and we'll look at, you know, fat content, marbling, um, you know, size. It's, it's everything. So there's this, like, meme around, because of this meat thing, you know, this kind of, uh, your, your expertise right now is meat. But I keep, when I was researching, I kept seeing these, the, the word, like, the word badass. Angie Mar is a badass, badass, badass. And I was like, that's kind of cliche. Like, it's, it's slightly gendered, too. How do you feel about being called, the, like, a badass, like, the woman doing meat is the badass? Because I feel like uh, it's a little weird to me. Sorry. Is it? A little. Is it really? A little. I don't know. I mean, I typically just say thank you. I do. I say thank you. I do. It's fair. I, I just, I don't know. Like, I feel like there's so much more that you're doing and to say, I don't know, it just felt yeah. like a little... You know, somebody asked me that question the other day, and they said, you know, do you feel that it's because you're a woman dealing with meat? And I was like, you know, for me, food doesn't have a gender. I don't think it should. You know, really great food is just really great food, and that's what I really love about cooking and yeah. about our, you know, about food and, and the art is it's just like, it's, it should be genderless, you know, in my opinion. But, but as far as the word badass goes, no, I mean, I'm always very flattered. The term is always flattering yeah. to you. Okay. All right, I just, yeah. it was just semantics, I guess we're going to say. Yeah. <laughs> so I always ask, what gets you up in the morning? Like, what gets you up in the morning, every, every morning? Uh, um, well, I own a business now, so I have to be up. Uh, <laughs> um, yeah, you know, it's, uh, I love going into the office. You know, one of my, um, one of my favorite things, so I'm there all the time now, and it's, it's so funny. I, I, um, when I met Pat Lafreda, I was like, God, you never sleep. Like, you never sleep. What is that about? You never sleep. And then I bought the Beatrice, and I was like, okay, I get it now. Yeah. I get it. I was, like, chain-smoking <laughs> and, you know, bought the restaurant and didn't sleep. Um, but, you know, we're so lucky mm -hmm. to be able to feed people. Yeah. I think it's such a privilege. And, um, you know, I say this time and time again. It's like, uh, for me, you know, some of my greatest memories come from being at a table. My greatest relationships 
my greatest food memories, yeah. my greatest memories with my family. Um, you know, all of those things, they start around the table, right? So for me to get to go in every day to a place that I love, to a place that I've made my home, and to be able to share that experience with others and to have that privilege that they're coming into our, our home and hopefully some of their greatest memories and their greatest relationships yeah. will start around one of our tables. Like, that's such an honor, you it know? It really is. And I'd like to pick up where Tejal had written in her wonderful piece for the Times about your staff and how mentoring... Yeah. I mean, she profiled a young woman, 19-year-old. Yeah, very young woman. Emma. So, Emma, you, have a, yeah. you, you really have a family there, of course. But also, yeah. tell me about just, like, mentoring very young folks in the restaurant industry, yeah. like how, what, what do you think about when you're hiring these individuals and, and what do you want, where do you want them to be in like five years? Yeah. You know, it's really interesting because, um, and you know, I've never actually, I think people that are really close to me know this. I've never actually done an interview and talked about this before, but, um, when I, I, I radically, I've owned the business for two years. Um, and we relaunched in September of 2016. That's when I reopened. And, um, when I bought the business, you know, I didn't have a track record. Nobody knew who I was. Um, they definitely, you know, it's not like I had proven myself yet as a chef, as an owner, as a restaurateur, like, you know, and I, I still am, you know. Um, but, you know, I, I couldn't hire really talented people at that time because I didn't have that track record, right? So it wasn't like there were, you know, a bunch of really talented, amazing young cooks or aspiring chefs that were knocking on my door wanting to work for me. And, um, you know, so I, we were in review period and, and I hired a bunch of like mercenary cooks, <laughs> like mercenary, like in it for the money, yeah. you know, they didn't care about James Beard. They What's don't the care. interview like? What are they knocking out? Like, what can they do? Like really? Yeah. Well? Like how skilled are you? Can you actually get the job done? Yeah. Right. And, and I figured, you know, okay, I have to hire these people now so I can accomplish what I need to accomplish so I can then have the track record and hire and start to build, right? And it was a really huge wake-up call for me because, um, you know, I, I care so much about the food, and I think as, as a creative, you know, you're, you're putting your soul and your heart out there on a plate. And, um, you know, because they're, you know, very much mercenaries and we're just in it for the money, they didn't care. And there was a, a point in time where, you know, we, you saw it, and it started to reflect in the food, and I was in review period. Is it glances at each other. How, what, what, how do you? See, what are you seeing? You know, it's funny because there's. Um, I always say this is that there you can go to a restaurant and food can be executed perfectly. It can be seasoned perfectly, but if you if there's no like soul, if there's no this in the it's food, it doesn't matter. Right? You're not going to have a really great meal. You know what I mean? Versus like food that's really cooked with passion and gusto. And there's a story behind it. And there's love in it. You know, It's completely different. Um, but so that's, that's where I kind of saw my kitchen going. Yeah. And um, you know, my sous chef, Nicole, uh, who's amazing, by the way. If you guys ever are at events that I'm at or, or come into the restaurant, she's there like every day. She's there probably more than I am now. And, um, you know... We fired the whole line in one night, which is Friday night. <laughs> okay, so yeah. There's, that's no, like we a, did. You fired the, your whole staff. Whole kitchen. Whole kitchen at night, fired every single one. You were because, like, here's your check, here's your I, check. Yeah, on a Friday night, Saturday night, had 220 covers on the books, and we were in review period. We were still waiting for our, you know, the wells, the next visit. But that was the whole catalyst for that is because I knew we were in review period, and this was going to be the restaurant that made my, made my name. So why would I do it 
if it wasn't going to be right. So we let everybody go, and it was what we had to do, and we cooked ourselves. I worked, we both worked the line. We were in there prepping every day and, and working the line at night, and we started to restaff. And what that taught me was how to hire, because I no longer was hiring people that it was just based off of skill. I was hiring people that you know, they had integrity and they might not have had the same skill level that I needed. That's fine. We can teach anybody how to cook. You can't teach that. You just, you can't. And so we've rebuilt the kitchen since then. It was the best decision I could have ever made yeah. is not, you know, to not accept anything less than passion and greatness and integrity. Let's back up when you're, when you, when you have 250 covers on a Saturday night and it's a unique uh, soup. It was crazy. Like, what, did you have to put it on the menu? Like, t- logistically, how did you turn off No, that we ran the same menu. I called Anita Lowe, and I said, Anita, do you have any extra cooks? I need some help. And she sent, she sent a couple people over, and that's what we did. That's what we did. And we did that for, I think, four, four months until we actually restaffed the kitchen. And, you know, I mean, it was great. I, I don't think I've ever been that thin. So <laughs> <laughs> it was a great diet. <laughs> I mean... When you, then they're still there, a lot of these Yeah, they're still there. But, but what I'm saying is that, that to get back to your original yeah. question, which was the Tejal piece and mentoring, it was that incident that really showed me, okay, I have to rebuild this kitchen. I'm going to rebuild it from scratch, and I'm going to mentor every single person in this kitchen because it doesn't matter what skill level they were coming in at. We could teach them whatever we want, right. but how bad did they want it? And if they wanted it really bad, then they were going to work hard and they were going to, you know, put all that they had onto the plate, which is really what matters. Because at the end of the day, when you guys all come to the restaurant, right, you know, doesn't matter if I'm in the kitchen, doesn't matter, you know, who's cooking your food. You care about what's on your plate, no? Like, that's what matters. You care about what's on the plate. Is it delicious? Exactly. Is it delicious? Is it delicious? Not, is the service good? Is the ambiance amazing? Not does it look is cool. The food, not does it look cool, but how does it make you feel? Yeah. Right? Yeah. What's the dish right now that you're doing that makes people feel the best? Oh, God. <laughs> I mean, what are you in the mood for? <laughs> you know, with this weather, honestly, I, I'm, I'm a winter girl. Like, I love this weather. Like, I'm glad that it's not like a million degrees out right now. Um, but one of my favorite dishes on the menu is the champagne de tete. That's actually, it's, it's simple braise, and it's just so much soul. Explain really that, nice. what that is a little bit more. So that dish actually, um, so it's, it, it's got kind of a romantic component to it. It's, um, it's actually a braise, and it dates all the way back to uh, King Louis XVI. And um, he had a mistress named Madame Champfayon, and she made him lamb chops encrusted in potatoes, and she then became his favorite. And by the way, she survived the guillotine. Oh. Yeah, she did. Um, so I, braised meats, guys. That's where it's braised at. Braised meats. <laughs> keeping you out of death's way. Yeah, keeping you out of death's way. I want to talk about, let's, let's, we have a few more minutes, and then we're going to get on with the show. But uh, your cookbook. You got a cookbook coming up in about I have a, a year. Yeah. So take us. Like, what are you thinking right now with your cookbook? Like, what, where are you in the production of it? What do you want to do with this cookbook? There are a lot of cookbooks out there, and mm-hmm. we all know that. Many yeah. of us buy them. Yeah. What's I, that like? I'm doing a book with Clarkson Potter. I'm really excited about it. Um, you know, the process is amazing. I'm learning so much. Um, but it will be a meat book. Absolutely. Uh, clearly, it would make sense for me to cook fish, right? Um, book two. <laughs> 
Maybe. Okay. Maybe not. <laughs> um, but no, it's going to be a meat book. And uh, what's really great about it is it's, you know, a lot of the dishes that we have on the Beatrice that everybody's been like, you know, give me the recipe for your duck. Give me a, the recipe for your whiskey-aged beef, um, which I've actually never shared with any. But all of that will be in the book. So I'm tremendously excited about that. But also, too, it's, um, it's going to be a book that's filled with recipes from my family and things that I would cook at home and, and you know, yeah. stuff that my dad made when I was growing cool. up. Or my version of it now, at least. So it's like meat and then some Chinese-American recipes? No, no. no so, I, yeah, say I'm Chinese-American, but my mom actually grew up in London. Okay. So, hence my affinity for meat pies. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, and, and, you know, my dad always had T-bone steaks on the table. So I actually didn't grow up with a lot of Chinese food. Um, I mean, this is my, my food and where my brain is. It, it's mm-hmm. very much rooted in, in French and British cuisine. So where do you want to be on your birthday in 10 years? <laughs> I'm giving you like this James Lipton thing, but I'm sorry. I just oh, God, where do I want to be on my birthday? Um, I want to be sitting at the Beatrice on table 26, which is right under the zebra painting. It's my favorite booth. Um, and I want to be eating caviar and beef bones and drinking really good champagne. Oh. I think that sounds about right. Does that sound That's good? Great. I feel like it sounds good, right? Angie, thank you so much. Here's Deb Perlman answering a reader question. In New York, we have limited refrigerator and freezer space. So a lot of conventional wisdom about keeping around frozen stocks and soups and produce kind of goes out the window. What's in your freezer? (laughs) Um, The way we open the freezer in this household is like we kind of like dock. We open it slowly and see if it's really overcrammed. We have... I'll stick to the interesting stuff. So there's um, chicken stock that's homemade. This is not always the case, but I'm very happy when it's there because it means that I can make simple soups and they'll taste a lot better. Um, oh, there's some really disgusting bananas. I don't know. They get you know you're supposed to freeze them and then you can use them later. But I'm like I just don't think I can look at them for a couple more days, so they might have to go. Um, so there's um, pelmeni, which are Russian dumplings. I'm Ukrainian. Ukrainian dumplings gonna get in trouble there um and they are we have meat and potato ones and grandma brings those over from the russian store and they're a great like quick dinner um comfort food what else is there probably some peas and carrots that might never be eaten um and um some chicken fingers i have absolutely no qualms with them i think they're a great food um we don't actually make a regular thing of it but i feel like if my kid wants chicken fingers in his lunchbox every two weeks that's fine. We can work that out. Are you the type of person who freezes stock in ice cube trays or in little individualized servings? No, no. Well, uh, no, no, that's just too crazy. Um, I just do quart bags. And then it's like, because that seems like a good unit of measurement. And if I don't need the whole one, we'll just, it's just going to go or we'll try to use it for something else. But no, one quart seems about right. Cool. Thanks. The Taste Podcast is hosted by Anna Hiesel and myself, Matt Rodbard. It is produced by Gabrielle Lewis. Our theme music is by Steve Rydell. Confidence wine supplied by Smith & Vine. Visit Taste Online at tastecooking.com. Tune in next week.